0: the opportunity to ask questions. There is a great proliferation. And I spend the afternoon laughing. (laughs) The questions ranged, of course, from the sublime to the subliminal humorous and beyond answering some of them. But I had fun, so maybe I can uh, share some of it with you. I've I've, um, grouped the first batch of questions, everything that came in by 3 o'clock, into four four groups, and then when I came in just now there was another uh, bunch of questions which I've reserved reserved for wherever I need them. But I think tonight the, the, the talks, what I'm going to do is not read all the questions, but just talk in such a way as to answer the questions. And I'll be speaking about the five spiritual faculties, the five jhana factors that overcome the five hindrances, the uh, four levels of absorption, the twelve links of dependent origination, <laughs> the four stages of enlightenment, and then a few other incidental interesting things. So, uh, the first area of questions is, what is mindfulness? (laughs) Haven't we heard that one before? There was a number of questions about mindfulness generally, but this seems to sum up the, or the answer to this question, will answer most of the questions about mindfulness. What is the relationship between concentration and mindfulness? Also, sometimes it sounds like concentration is the key to wisdom. Sometimes mindfulness seems to have this function. Can you comment on this? One way to put mindfulness in the context of the whole path of unfolding, because we talk about it a lot, and we talk about the significance of the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness, maybe being the most important discourse that he gave, and we talk about it a lot, But it is a mental factor that is cultivated or recognized like others. And one way to understand the place of mindfulness in one's growth of understanding, deepening of concentration, and the whole unfolding of wisdom is... to look at the what are called the Five Controlling Faculties, or the Five Spiritual Faculties. And these are five qualities of mind, or attributes of mind, that are developed with any spiritual practice in any tradition. And they're the qualities of confidence, energy, mindfulness, Concentration and wisdom. In the Buddha's understanding of these five factors, he sees that confidence or some level of assurance is necessary before one would arouse energy to practice. It is through the arousing of energy and the application of the mind energetically that one becomes mindful or one becomes aware or one sees clearly. Due to the continuity of that seeing, the moment-to-moment clear, mindful awareness, seeing, knowing, the mind gradually becomes collected, focused, less scattered, more concentrated due to the continuity of mindfulness. The mind that is concentrated and collected not distracted, dispersed, or fragmented, but very collected, noticing precisely what is happening in each moment, sees that moment more clearly, with more detail, with a greater depth of understanding that moment's experience. And that depth of understanding is wisdom. Continuity of mindfulness deepens concentration. Deeper concentration reveals more details, more understanding of what is being observed, which in turn, as we understand more of our experience, see more deeply, we feel inspired, we feel confident, we feel, yes, this works, this works for me, I understand the practice, the process, and with that supported confidence, or with that reassurance, or that increase in confidence, we feel motivated to make further attempts, or further effort. And the effort, again, results in greater mindfulness, continuity of mindfulness, concentration, more concentration, more wisdom. And so there is a gradual, cyclic, development of these five factors or five faculties uh, as we continue in practice. Until, hopefully, the confidence is fully supported or our assurance or our belief in practice and understanding and our own ability to practice sufficiently or adequately Is verified by our understanding that we know for ourselves. This is the way to freedom. But what is that mindfulness that is so central or such a key to this cyclic development of all the factors? all the faculties. Mindfulness has the task of keeping the object in view. Keeping the meditation object in sight. And in Vipassana practice that may be the breath as a primary object, and any of the other experiences mental or physical, as secondary object, such that when they appear, mindfulness recognizes, or mindfulness keeps that appearance in view. In practicing metta, we also develop mindfulness. The object of mindfulness is metta or the person, or the feeling, whatever is the handle for you to develop that loving feeling. And so, in the development of metta, we are also developing mindfulness. Continuity of mindfulness. Continuity of mindfulness of metta deepens concentration. Now to step back a little bit further. How do we arouse mindfulness? And where to, um, to further show the relationship between mindfulness and concentration I want to talk about the factors of mind that appear in a concentrated mind. We have talked about the importance of connecting with your experience and sustaining your attention on it in order to know it clearly. And it is these two movements of the mind, connecting with your experience and sustaining your attention on it that results in mindfulness. And the sustaining your attention on it is significant because experience lasts for a period of time. It may be brief, but there is some duration to it. Our mind is very, very quick. It can be here and gone in an instant. And it is possible to be skipping from one experience to the next, just barely touching them off the top and not really knowing them carefully. And so it's necessary to steady the mind so that we can actually see what this experience is. Our ability to connect with experience moment to moment overcomes the hindrance of sleepiness our ability to sustain our attention on that experience will overcome any doubt as to what that experience really is another hindrance due to the continuity of connecting and sustaining in that clear seeing of what this experience is the mind takes great delight in knowing. The knowing quality of the mind becomes exceptionally clear, exceptionally bright, very energized, very light, and it results in the appearance in the mind of delight. Delight in knowing things as they are. And that delight, as has been mentioned in previous talks, can be very, a very minor delight, such as just kind of a rush of excitement or tingling. It can be ecstatic rapture, where the, the body just is filled with excitement in just knowing and appreciating things as they are. When that quality of delight is present in the mind, there can be no aversion. Delight overcomes the hindrance of aversion. When that delight matures and kind of settles down and we stop just kind of ecstaticing all over the place, and we just kind of settle into things as they are, when it matures, it settles down into a pleasant comfort of the mind and body just an easeful knowing things as they are with a certain degree of comfort in the body. This overcomes any restlessness in the mind. Because the mind is happy, the mind is comfortable, the body is comfortable, overcomes the hindrance of restlessness. And when the body and mind are comfortable, we have no interest in pursuing or craving some other experience. It's just fine the way it is. And that steadiness of mind, that single-pointed, easeful presence, overcomes the hindrance of craving or attachment. So these five qualities of mind, connecting, sustaining, delight, comfort, and single-pointedness overcome the five hindrances. These are called the five factors of concentration. When they are all present, there can be no hindrances. And that's what concentrated mind means, that there are no hindrances present. Because the five factors of concentration that overcome them are all developed and somewhat mature and in balance. With the hindrances aside, temporarily, and, and it's not like you put the hindrances aside, they're gone for the rest of the retreat. It's, you put the hindrances aside, they're gone for five minutes, maybe, or a minute or two. and. You know, with practice, you know, maybe a whole sitting, not too inflamed by the hindrances. But <clears throat> when the mind is steadily on the appearing phenomena, initially we spend a lot of time cataloguing what is known. Sensations and thoughts and feelings and plans and emotions and memories and, and commenting and narrating and judging and heat and cold and vibrating and tingling and pain and pleasure and on, and on and on and on and on. In time, that becomes, that level of knowing becomes not even easy, not even it becomes familiar and it requires a continuity of attention. But what we begin to notice after all of the aversion and craving for those experiences is put aside, is we begin to notice the process that's happening more than the content of what's happening. And then we start to notice or we start to develop insight where we really see deeply into the underlying nature of all experience. Anicca, Anatta, and Dukkha. Our, and our mindfulness really notices those particular qualities or those characteristics of experience. And it's those characteristics or seeing those characteristics which is wisdom so this is in short the relationship between mindfulness with concentration and wisdom practically speaking as the mind becomes more focused or concentrated it's as if we're looking through we're looking at our life experience through a magnifying lens And just as looking at anything through a powerful lens, we see what we have always seen before. But we know it more distinctly, more minutely, more intimately. It's as if I said, well, as I hold up my hand, what do you see? And from where you are, you see a hand. And as you come closer, you can really see the four fingers and the thumb. And as you get closer, you can see the, the lines of the fingerprints. And you might see a few scars. And if you took a magnifying lens, you could see pores and, and little littler things on the surface of the skin. And if you took a piece of that skin and put it under a microscope, you could see much more detail of what it is you are looking at here, but don't see and that is the the process that the mind goes through as it becomes more concentrated it sees what we've always seen in more detail or well, we we see for the first time what has always been there but didn't see because the mind was not yet powerful enough to see beneath the appearance of our life, our behavior, our actions, our motivations, our thoughts, our desires. We haven't seen beneath their appearance, seen deeply into their underlying nature. And this is wisdom. So this is the relationship between mindfulness, clear-seeing, the continuity of which develops concentration, the deepening of which reveals more, Details of our life, understanding or wisdom. With that understanding and wisdom, we can answer this question What's the difference between English breakfast and Irish breakfast tea? Now, we could sit here and debate what the differences are. But with mindfulness, you go get two cups. And you look, you you feel, you smell, you put water in the cup, and you take two sips. One of this, and one of that. And with that clear seeing, you'll know what the difference is. Nobody can, no argument you will know for yourself. This is English breakfast. This is Irish breakfast. Simple. Wisdom. Now there's a whole bunch of questions on meta. If I can find them. Did the Buddha say anything about sending metta to plants and trees? What to do when practicing metta and bothered by thoughts? How can you do a lot of metta practice without becoming too concentrated and sleepy? How do you keep the energy up and are there other pitfalls to the practice of metta? Metta is a concentration practice. It's not insight. And as such, what we do is, in developing mindfulness of metta, we we're not looking to understand the experience in each moment, whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, whether it is hot or cold, thoughts, feelings, emotions, we're not looking to understand anything that's going on in that sense. When we practice metta, we're just sending our mind to the metta person with that feeling, moment after moment. Developing mindfulness of metta in each moment. When the mind becomes distracted, or we become bothered by thoughts, hindrances, whatever, we don't note them. We just, in the moment of recognizing we're off the meta, we go back and begin again. We just keep going back again and again to the same person, the same phrases, the same feeling, whatever it is so that we develop a mind that is very single-pointed. It's only paying attention to metta. That metta practice. Taking metta as its object. What this does, this has the effect of just beelining through a crowd. We're not turning and looking at all of the things that cause us aversion. We're not turning and looking at those things that cause us attachment. We're not looking at those things that cause us doubt, or sleepiness, or fear, or anything else. We're going straight for the object. And so, consequently, we don't develop any understanding of the hindrances, or the nature of the body, or the nature of the mind. We just develop knowledge of metta. And that's the wisdom factor that gets cultivated in the practice of metta. It's not insight wisdom, it's the knowledge of loving-kindness, the knowledge of a concentrated mind. And if one practices and able to attain very deep concentration, then one has the knowledge of absorptions or that, knowledge that comes with a very concentrated mind. Not insight knowledge. It's not knowledge of anicca, anatta, and dukkha. It's knowledge of concentration. It's knowledge of metta. As we single-pointedly develop Meta. The mind becomes, of course, very collected, very concentrated. And one of the associative, associative factors of mind is tranquility. We become very still, very calm, very steady. And there is a tendency to drift in that stillness and fall asleep. And for many of us, our goal in practice is calmness. You know, we're we're just looking for a little bit of peace and quiet, a little bit of calmness, a little bit of stillness in the body where we feel things are uh, slowed down or stopped for a minute. And tranquility practices such as metta or samatha practices, concentration practices such as metta, will give it to you. They will give you that momentary uh, stillness, nothing happening, absolute quietness of mind and body. As long as you practice. And then, of course, as soon as the momentum of that stillness wears off back come all of the hindrances, all of the planning, all of the unresolved memories and, and traumas and dramas that we have just kind of bypassed on our beeline to stillness. The stillness is great but the hindrances and whatnot. Uh, the unresolved stuff, so to speak, it'll come back. It hasn't been seen through. It hasn't been let go of. That which causes craving has not been let go of. That which causes aversion has not been dealt with. We've just kind of pushed it aside and kept it out of our mind while we kept something else in our mind. Metta. So one can develop very deep tranquility. Now I talked about those five concentrating factors of mind, the five jhana factors. As one practices metta, they too get developed. Connecting, sustaining on your metta object, joy or delight, sukha, happy comfort of mind and body, and single-pointedness of mind as the mind becomes very familiar with metta practice, it can relax the connecting and sustaining. They, they, they just begin to happen automatically. They just There's just a lot of momentum in the mind that just carries you forward one moment to the next. And so we can really settle back And not have that feeling of constantly arise, uh, uh, generating the phrases, or generating the image, or whatever, and they just fall away. And then we uh, become aware of the joy, or the delight, or the comfort of mind and body, or the steadiness, the the absolute unmovability, or unmovingness of the mind. And as one practices further, and, and the momentum develops more, then even that joy and delight falls away. And we just rest in a very comfortable tranquility. And if we practice further, even that comfort falls away, and there's just steadiness and single-pointedness of mind. And these are the different experiences in deepening concentration. But if we've developed this steadiness through metta or through any other concentrative practice, that sublime experience of tranquility and peace is at best temporary, impermanent. And when you stop practice, then In time the momentum will wear off and you'll be back where you started, so to speak. The Buddha praised those men and women who practiced either concentration practices or insight. But he was unequivocal in acknowledging the limitation of love or concentration practices to free the mind from its misunderstandings. He praised people for practicing concentration practices. But in fact, those are the practices that were taught long before the Buddha in other traditions and are still taught by, in, in most traditions, practicing love and developing deep concentration. And the Buddha's two teachers before he became the Buddha, when he was the Bodhisattva, taught him just that. How to develop very deep concentration and absorptions. And having mastered those practices, the, all that was offered in India at the time, he realized that that was not freedom. That deep Absorption is not freedom. It is a temporary state, which can, with a lot of practice, have a lot of momentum and last for a long time, but eventually it will pass away. It, too, is impermanent. So he went on to look further beyond anything his teachers could offer him to realize for himself what freedom was or is questions has to deal with karma. And I think, I'm not sure if there was a karma talk, specifically a karma talk given this retreat, but inevitably once we start talking about karma there are innumerable questions um, probing into the details of just how this could be. So, I will spend a few minutes trying to explain a little bit of that. In the hall, you said... You have a choice. It is up to you. And, you said, the process is choiceless. (laughs) They both seem true, yet contradictory. When a choice does arise, isn't the intention to act karmically conditioned? And it is said that things are not preconditioned. That we can bring about change, yet the whole process is selfless. So how do we effect change and transmute our karma? And then it says, you spoke about karmic action last night. What then is non-karmic action? Good question. it says, I believe it was Upandita or some other text which said that karma from a thought was equal to the karma of an action. Could that really be true? And if so, I'm hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> and about karma also. If one does something really unskillful in this or past life, is there any way to get it off your record? <laughs> well, what if there has been some understanding and some remorse or some forgiveness, etc.? Or, do, or does one just have to suffer the consequences? Hmm. The law of karma, in its most simple form, says that intentional actions in the past have had a conditioning effect on the present. How we respond to the present, or how clearly we know the present and react or respond to it, has a conditioning effect on future. One step up from most simple would then say, okay, looking at this moment's experience, how much of it was conditioned by past actions? The law of karma said, says some, not all. This moment, the quality of pleasantness or unpleasantness is conditioned by past karma. The particular objects we see or hear or uh, uh, experience, that's not determined by karma. The quality of feeling is how we know that experience in this moment, whether there is mindfulness or not, is not determined by karma. It's determined by other conditions. There are many conditions causing this moment to be the way it is. Karma is only one of those conditions. For example, In this moment, our body feels somehow. Just, just tune in to how your body feels right now. Okay. Some of what you feel is, of course, rooted in karma. We have a body due to karma. but. It's a little bit chilly in here, for me. That coolness that I feel has nothing to do with karma. I just ate about an hour before I came, and there's a certain level of mm, sensation in this area of the body due to that. Nothing to do with karma. That has to do with the digestive process, environmental conditions, And now that I'm here giving a talk, there's a little bit of nerviness and there's a little bit of joy and there's a little bit of clarity, I hope. Those experiences of joy, clarity, uh, energy that I feel in the body at this time is due to the nature of the mind right now, not karma. And so in this moment, the experience of the body that I feel is due to karma, environmental conditions, the quality of mind, and the the stage of digestion of the food, among other things. So we can just, in that simple vignette, see that karma is only one of the conditions that serve to create this moment's experience. Now, how we respond to it is the new intentional action or the new karma that we perform now that lays the track down for future experience. Hmm. karmic action comes in many different intensities, so to speak. And that intensity or that power of the karmic action and therefore the karmic result is in part determined by how intently we perform that action, and so if we have a thought, just a passing thought, uh, you know, la di da, and never think of it again. Not much karmic effect. Not much. But on the other hand, if we have a thought and we just dwell on it, and we think about it, and we plan, and we scheme, and we finagle, and we and we just ruminate over and over and over again how to get that or do that or mm, mm, mm. every one of those moments is a karmic act and there's a lot of intention and a lot of energy and a lot of determination in that action therefore a lot more karmic result but even then all of that ruminating in the mind hasn't yet moved the body to act on it And so, there's a certain quantum leap that happens when the stuff that's going on in the mind moves the body to reach for and get or to reach for and push away from pleasant and unpleasant experience. Then we've got a lot of intention and a lot of energy in order to move that body. Every every segment of movement is intentional action sure to have its result at some point in the future it is said though that as one practices and develops understanding and brings you know as we all do we do this kind of personal history review and all of the mm, you know joys and sorrows and the regrets and the remorses and the happiness of our life comes up for review and you know some things that we've done in the past that have been mm, not so skillful for some reason they come up and they torment us and we may see more clearly and we say ooh, boy, I'm really, I'm really sorry I did that, or I have a lot of remorse, or, or we feel very forgiving, or we feel love towards the person that we really hurt intentionally, or whatever, whatever, whatever. All of those moments are further good karma that tend to mitigate, but not erase, that previous action. So, too, if one practices, uh, if one has been done something good in the past, being generous. On the spur of the moment, you had the opportunity to to give something to a beggar or anyone. And you just did it, and you gave it. There's a lot of karmic actions being performed in that. And then you walk a little further down the road, or or you get your next bank statement and you see, oh my goodness. Gee, I don't have as much money as I thought. Huh? Maybe I shouldn't have geez, I shouldn't have given it that much. I shouldn't have you know. And then we have regret for having done something good. Mm-hmm. That tends to minimize the effect of that previous good action. So the most powerful karma, of course, is that which is reflected on acted on and reinforced after if it's good or if it's if it's unwholesome then to tend to mitigate it but I've heard that it can't be erased but I'm not the bookkeeper so I don't know Now the next topic is, it's always lurking in the background, this is a good way to put it. What did Upandita say was the minimum goal a yogi should have? I think it was a Pali word and somebody coughed at the time and I missed it. so on and so forth. Having spent 30 years in really bad karma, in quotes, the killing fields, what chance do I stand of making it in this three-month course? Back in the time of the Buddha, it seemed that people were becoming enlightened easily. many people became enlightened then now it seems very difficult to even reach first stage why is that? is it a sign of the times or is it just us? (laughs) is Upandita enlightened? (laughs) if not do we know who is? And if we know who is, could we invite him to IMS? (laughs) And how do we know when someone's enlightened anyway? Uh, Let's see. I remember asking Upandita these same questions. But it was at the time in Burma at the uh, festival where all of the elders of this particular tradition came to Rangoon and they were about the 400 monastic elders and a couple of hundred nun elders and as I would stand on the sidelines and watch them walk to meals, I was, of course, looking at the elders of this tradition and trying to see which one's enlightened, or if there was such a thing, or how I might have some idea or some indication. And I couldn't tell a thing. So I asked Upanidya I said you know is there, is there anybody out in that line who is enlightened and he goes who knows who knows so it rather than kind of spin out on who's enlightened and how we ever going to know let's turn the question around and say what for ourselves would be freedom. That seems to be the best definition of enlightenment. <clears throat> In this tradition, the Theravada tradition, the path of awakening is laid out in certain stages and it is said or it is in the text say that there are some stages to awakening first stage second stage third stage fourth stage and they're helpful as a way of understanding the process that we go through, not so much as a goal to be striven for, because who knows what that's all about, but rather just as a rough map to point to what has, in this tradition, been considered freedom. It is said at some, what they call a first stage, that one would then have no doubt about the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, and karma. No doubt. That that thoughts about thoughts of doubting the Buddha and enlightenment, thoughts of doubting karma, thoughts of doubting um, the Dharma would never arise. Now how are we going to get to that level of confidence? Because that's really what it's pointing to, a certain level of confidence. How are we going to uproot that level of doubt or those kinds of doubt from our mind? Read a book? No. Talk to a teacher? No. Listen to a talk? No. Practice? Yes because it's only in our own practice that we begin to uncover all of our doubts. Well, what if this? What if that? What about karma? What about the teaching of the Buddha? What about the Buddha? What about the Sangha? Are there any enlightened beings, etc., etc., etc.? The only way we'll ever know is to see within ourselves. The truthfulness, if it is true of the law of karma, of whatever level of confidence or lack of doubt we might have in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. In some ways, one way to understand the path of practice is, initially, it is um, kind of a perpetual confrontation with doubt. And it's increasingly subtler and subtler doubts that we have to look at. We have to actually look and see. You know, I don't think I can do this. I don't know what to do in this moment. I don't know how to understand this experience. Those are all manifestations of doubt. And only by meeting that doubt and finding our way through it, Will we ever know for sure for ourselves? And so we we do what we can to live with or to be with or to let go of or to see through that doubt. And then when we have gotten through that level or that kind of doubt, we practice with a little confidence until we meet another doubt, another subtler doubt. And we're stuck in practice for a while until we figure out a way to deal with that. And then we get through that. And we practice into subtler practice until we meet another doubt. And in time, we cover all doubts. In time, there's no doubt. Doubt does not arise because we have seen through it. And it's said that when that becomes. when one has really seen through all their doubt, by just meeting it, not by avoiding it, but by meeting it and opening to it and feeling that level of doubt and finding the way to practice beyond it, that when that becomes clear to the mind, then the mind opens. Because we, this is a practice of opening and opening and opening and meeting doubt and getting stuck and opening past that and meeting doubt and getting stuck and opening past that. And in time, when there's no doubt present, the mind opens to the unconditioned. A glimpse of the unconditioned. Doubt never arises again. So, they say, ah, oh, that's... That's worthy of being called step number one. But that's not the end. I mean, we still got lots of aversion, lots of craving, lots of sleepiness, restlessness. Oh, is it? plenty. But that's what they call first stage. And then we start and continue working with our aversion and our attachment. And we just come up against all of those things that we want and things that we don't want. And they stop us in practice for a while. But in time, we learn to let go. We let go of the craving for this, and the aversion to that, and the frustration with this, and the wanting of that. And We let go, we let go. We keep practicing. We practice, we practice, we practice. We let go, we let go. We let go quicker. We let go infinitely quick. In time, it is said, we have seen through that process of Um, aversion, and we've seen through that process in the mind of clinging, craving, or let's say craving for sensory experience. And again, the mind comes to some profound realization that there is no more aversion or craving for sensual experience and opens to the unconditioned. Craving and aversion for sensual pleasures sensual experience, never arises again. But we still have pride, we still have uh, restlessness, we still have craving for the subtlety of absorption in the, the jhanas, and we still have some ignorance, sleepiness, dullness. And so we have to keep practicing. And so we keep practicing and practicing and practicing. And we meet every form of Sleepiness, every form of mana, pride that we've heard about before, and we just see our way through all of those obstacles to opening. And in time, it is said, they no longer arise. One has seen through that particular process in the mind of. identified with pride getting obstructed by sleepiness or getting obstructed by restlessness and the mind opens to the unconditioned again after that what's left there's no more craving for any form of becoming and no, no more craving for sensual experience no more craving for immaterial uh... Absorptions or mental absorptions or fine material, mental nothing. There's no craving for any of that. So, any actions performed then have no karmic consequences. There's, there's There's no further becoming. There's no craving for any becoming. No more karma. Still have to live out this life. So they say still have a body, still have to experience the effects of past karmic actions, but without creating any more new karmic actions to produce results. This is considered, in this tradition, santi sukha, the most sublime happiness or peace. So when one has, for example, uh, no doubt about the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, how are you going to recognize it? By their appearance? By their behavior? No doubt is not reflected in appearance or behavior. It's reflected in the mind, the mind that has no doubt and so unless you really know someone's mind very intimately you would never know whether they were enlightened or not in the buddha it said that only the buddha knows whether someone is really really has no doubt or not but people who practice a lot people who really have some profound understanding whether it's enlightened or not, who knows, but they begin to manifest the qualities that we are cultivating here. Tranquility and energy, wakefulness, understanding, balance of mind, patience, minimizing our reactivity to uh, crave and to, to be a virgin, to aversion. And so in every moment, that we develop those qualities, we could say, that is a mini-enlightenment. That is a moment of no craving. We just have to string more of those moments together and then we'll know for ourselves. But it's really interesting to read of the different individuals identified as fully enlightened in the time of the Buddhas, there were some characters. And they had very distinct personalities. And they had behavior trips that were what we would call, you know, behavior trips. And they seemed to have, you know, real strong personalities, but without identification. So read read some stories about the the enlightened ones, the men and women who were enlightened at the time of the Buddha, to kind of de... to expose your mm, hidden beliefs of what enlightened is all about. Very informative. But it's said to be fully enlightened or fully awake. Is when one knows all that needs to be known like who played in this year's World Series and who won Atlanta beat Cleveland four games to two